Hello, everyone. Welcome to Equals. This is Max. Hi, everyone. This is Nabil. Welcome to our final Equals episode in 2020. A bit of a Christmas and New Year's special. We'll be joined today by Christiana Figuera, someone who's made a bit of history for the world on, on climate change. But before we do get there, Max, can you believe this is our first episode together in, in Equals Season 3? Yeah, maybe it's because of the huge distance between us now you know back in the uk i'm really missing you i'm missing you too man it's not going to be not going to be the same for christmas you know without you yeah no more gora christmases for you unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. there's got to be some advantages though i guess to being in the uk at least you'll get a vaccine before me uh i will i mean i probably would anyway because i'm so much older than you but um and it, it is great when you see all the the elderly people being vaccinated but it's also a travesty that the rest of the world isn't getting vaccinated too, which is why we need to fight for a people's vaccine in 2021. But that's another episode. Another episode. That is another episode. That is another episode. So 2021 is going to be a massive year about ending this deadly and painful pandemic. It's also a massive year for climate change and for fighting climate change. And there are big climate negotiations taking place, aren't there, Max? Yeah. Now, there was supposed to be a crucial uh, meeting in Glasgow uh, this month, and it was postponed until next year, December. And that is the meeting where all nations will come together to set stronger targets. And it really is the last chance to stop climate breakdown. So it's a huge year in 2021. Yeah, true. And we are also living in a time in which there is a greater push to save the planet than we've seen in years of the rise of these powerful climate movements, such power on the streets. And you see those around the world, but also, Max, you know, you see them in, in different parts of the world as well. I was recently just in Lamu. It's a old Swahili coastal island just off the coast of Kenya, where it's hard to find a car, you know, it's it's boats everywhere. And one interesting thing that I learned about, there was this push from, from the Chinese government, backed by the Kenyan government, to build a new coal-fired power plant. And the community, they stood up against it. They said no, you know, and actually the boats that we were on, the sails all read the same thing, which is no coal in Lamu. And, you know, speaking to some of the fishermen, they said to me, this would have been the end of us. You know, they stood up, they fought back, and, and they've been winning. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. It's a great story about a successful protest. And it just shows these climate protests are worldwide, aren't they? And it is inspiring. And we have to hope they can put enough pressure on to see something really change. You're absolutely right. And and they are inspiring and they are connected as well. And we're speaking to somebody today who really knows how to broker change with governments on the issue of climate change. We're really lucky to have Christiana Figueres. She was the head of the UN Climate Change Convention, brokering that famous Paris Agreement in 2015. She's also wrote this amazing book recently called The Future We choose which really doesn't mince its words about you know what the choices are that the world needs to make and she's also a costa rican so she's uh, one of <laughs> one of equals his favorite countries um one of the most equal countries in latin america universal health coverage great place to live yeah there. People are happier, healthier, all yeah, that. Yeah. Exactly. And what we're going to do um, today is we're going to do the wrap up uh, with one of our colleagues, Naf Kote. She's a climate activist. She's from Ethiopia and she's going to be helping us look at what Christiana's had to say. So that's going to be exciting too. It really is. Let's get to it. Let's get to it. Yeah. Christiana, welcome to Equals. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to do this interview. We're huge fans of your work at Oxfam and uh, also our first Costa Rican on the podcast. Thank you very much for, for joining us. Uh, we're looking forward uh, to the interview. Well, thank you. Thank you for uh, for the invitation. Um, I, I'm surprised I'm the first Costa Rican on. Uh, hopefully we will have many more and I have to share 
that yesterday we just celebrated the anniversary of the abolition of our army. You know, in most countries, what is celebrated is uh, the army presence, and you see tanks rolling down the streets and soldiers marching down with their weapons and flag waving and all of that. And in Costa Rica, what we celebrate is the abolition of the army, which happened way back in 1948, and used that national budget to uh, protect nature and to educate our people. And hence, that is the secret to Costa Rica being very high up on the happiness index and on nature protection and on many other issues that are near and dear to our hearts. So not only am I the first Costa Rican on your podcast, I am a very proud Costa Rican, especially today. That's amazing. I think we should just talk about Costa Rica, actually, all day. No, no, we need to talk about climate change, but that is fascinating. And I think <laughs> it's a strong, strong incentive to go there. The problem is, if you work for Oxfam, you tend to go to the countries that are least successful and have the most problems. So finding a reason to go to Costa Rica has always been hard, but I think we need to... Well, we need no, to the, the reason is simple. You need inspiration. How's that? Exactly. I love it. And maybe that's maybe that has something to do with this um, this next question I'm going to ask. Christiana, great to have you on the podcast. And for me, listening to you over the years, reading your reading, reading what you write, I mean, I've always been struck by this optimism that you carry. This is happening even when every other day we're hearing new stories about ecological climate breakdown, seeing new disasters. I used to think I was an optimist, but I think pay, I pale in comparison to you. How do you stay so optimistic, Cristiano, in, in, in such a scary world? Well, um, I, I think optimism is a choice. It's not the result of reading the news, for sure. And honestly, these days, it is a daily choice. And it has to be a very courageous choice. And it's a choice to, uh, to acknowledge and to strengthen every day the realization that we do have what it takes to answer both the national as well as the international and the global threats that are in front of us. Because if we just give up and say, well, you know, the climate crisis is too complex, it's too costly, it's too late anyway, um, then we have done absolutely nothing to improve the life of our children and those that come after us. And I just don't think that that's, you know, the terms of reference of a parent all of us, all of us, every single one of us has the responsibility to do everything that we have, everything to improve life conditions on this planet. That is that is very powerful. And that, that idea of having choices before us, Christiana, runs very powerfully through your book, The Future We Choose. Um, and can I just say, you know, what I found most powerful looking back at the book is these contrasting pictures of the world that you paint in 2050, if, if things go well and if things don't go so well. Could we just go there for a second? And I would love if you could just paint those pictures for us of the world in 2050 and the different options that we have. In that one chapter that we made, uh, as, as compelling but as short as possible, we do describe a world that is very easily painted by scientific projections. So it is not our science fiction, but rather everything that we say there is based on scientific projections. And if we continue on current levels of greenhouse gas emissions, we will blow through the carbon budget. And by 2050, we could well be living in a world in which the air is unbreathable, A, because of pollution that is harming our 
hearts, our lungs, and our brains, but also because of the heat that is going to make it practically impossible to run, play, or work outside. So all of that would have to be done inside, under air conditioning conditions, in those countries that have air conditioning. And what about the countries that don't? That is the big problem. What about countries where already today we already have food insecurity and that under conditions of runaway climate, not only would they have food insecurity, they would have such drought and such heat that a lot of that area will be rendered uninhabitable uninhabitable. And those people would have to be migrating forcibly, not because they want to leave their homes, because they would rather stay home, but they would have to migrate in order to save their lives and the lives of their children. That then cascades onto huge confrontations at borders, political strife inside countries, around countries, at the borders of countries, and obviously food conflicts, water conflicts, I mean, it is, and health, health, can you imagine? We've only had one, frankly, tiny little disease because this is, COVID is nothing compared to the zootic disease, zoonotic diseases that we may have with runaway climate change. And, and, and here we are, right, in a, in, I don't know, daydreaming our way into that kind of a world. That is why we put that world out there so that we understand that this is not a world that any of us can afford, that any of us can allow to happen. We have to give it absolutely everything that we have to avoid that world. Now, the cool thing about this is that if we are able to cut our emissions by one half with respect to current emissions over the next decade, then not only do we avoid this dystopian world that we cannot afford to go into, but we actually open the door to a world that is so much better than the world that we live in now. And that is difficult for us to imagine because we think we live, you know, in the best possible world under the current conditions that we have. Well, yes, but we could improve those conditions. We could have clean cities that do not have air pollution. We could have transport that is efficient. We could be feeding every single person on this planet healthy, good food. We could have everyone having access to water, to potable and drinkable water. We could have every single family have access to electricity. I mean, honestly, this is just such a difference. The difference between the two worlds is so huge that it is difficult to describe. It is difficult to imagine. But that is why we have to give it our all. I think that, I mean, it paints such a stark image. I mean, having lived and worked with Oxfam in all sorts of places with, with no electricity and seeing the, just the transformation in people's lives that that kind of thing can bring. It's an inspiring vision, Christiana. One of the things we're very worried about is the connection between inequality and the climate crisis. So the the emissions of the richest 1%, uh, in particular, and the richest 10%, we calculated recently the richest 1% caused double the CO2 emissions of the poorest 50% in the world. What do you think about the role of the rich in this positive future? Now, what would your message be to the billionaires uh, in terms of painting a picture of their role? 
in, in this more positive future? Well, I interpret rich in, at two levels, right? Uh, yes, individuals um, and families, but also countries, both. And there is a huge responsibility on the shoulders of both of those. And the responsibility is to take the lead, to pick up your responsibility and do what you can do. Because it is very clear, as you have pointed out, that those that have the most resources, that that you have most of the historical responsibility. And historical responsibility is the golden guideline of the Climate Change Convention. There is very, very clear, a very clear um, uh, statement there and a principle that has always been respected that those who have most historical responsibility for having caused the emissions that cause climate change have an outsized part of the responsibility. There is no doubt. And let's, let's look at it this way also. If I or you or my country or my town or my company has an outsized level of emissions, that actually means that it has a potential for outsized level of emission reductions. If I or you do not have emissions to speak of, we also don't have the potential for emission reductions. It's as simple as that. So emission reductions have to occur where the emissions are, whether that is in your family, in your company, in your city, in your country, wherever they are, that's where they have to occur. I think that's very clear. So when we think about the next year, I mean, it's, you know, 2021, the crucial year for climate, we had the postponement of the COP because of coronavirus. Um, and now it's happening in Glasgow at the end of next year. How can you see, I mean, what are the ingredients that make you feel positive about uh, a progressive outcome in Glasgow uh, next year? What, what what gives you hope in terms of kind of the, the different key players that would bring a deal to the table? So, so let's just start with geopolitics. The fact that China uh, came out before the U.S. election, when nobody knew what the result of the U.S. election was going to be, with their peaking emissions target, as well as with their carbon neutrality target, followed then very quickly by Korea, Japan, South Africa, Colombia very recently, um, and then, of course, uh, the EU. And and uh, if you add to that the U.S., that will be finally joining the concert of nations that are decarbonizing their economy. Well, if you add all of that up, then you come to the astonishing result that just last year, 25% of the world economy was acting with carbon responsibility. This year, if we include the US already, 75% of the world economy is already acting with carbon responsibility. That is an absolutely huge step forward. That, of course, assumes that they're all going to enact what they have said that they're going to commit to. So, of course, there is a there's somewhat of a of a gap there, of an implementation gap. But, you know, taking them on their word, it is very huge that there is that push forward. That is just on the government side. On the corporate side, every day I see more and more companies that are understanding that this is actually good for them, that this actually uh, is uh, something that contributes to a thriving business because decarbonization means that they're acting resource smart energy smart, client smart, hiring people smart. 
It's just the right thing to do. So you have a growing number of companies that are assuming not just net zero, um, net zero targets by 2050, but you see now that date changing to 2040, to 2035, to 2030. And in fact, you even see companies that are saying they're going to be climate positive by 2030, meaning they're going to be absorbing more carbon than they're emitting. Why? Not because they want to save the planet. Let's be very clear. These are companies, right? They're motivated by profit, but they have finally understood that Profit is at risk if they're not responsible companies. Client expectation is that companies need to be contributing to the solutions of the environment and of society. And if they're not, there is a huge loss in social license for those companies. So companies are getting it. And um, the finance sector is also moving much more toward uh, pulling their uh, their capital from high carbon and very risky investments and portfolios to much lower risky investments and portfolios. Here is the bottom line. All of that transition on the part of governments, on the part of corporates, on the part of the finance sector is not flat. It is not a linear uh, graph. It is exponential. And that's the exciting part. The beginning of this decade has actually started very well. That is not a guarantee that we're going to be at half our emissions by 2030. There is never any guarantee, but it's a pretty good start. It is. You're very, very compelling, Christian. Let me put that excitement question about it to the US the new US administration that we have coming in, the Biden administration. And we've all been following it very closely. And one thing I've been interested in seeing, Christiana, is the way that they've been trying to listen to the new climate movements on the rise in the US, even in these task forces that they've been holding, they've been including their voices. And, and you know, we know that you've worked very closely with John Kerry in the past, and he's going to obviously have a huge role in driving the climate policy of this administration. How excited are you about the new U.S. administration, how much do you think they're going to shift the dial? I am so excited that I have to tell you. I was at home when I received the news that um, Biden was confirmed as president-elect. And I I was so excited that I jumped up and down, twirled around in circles, screamed at the top of my voice, not knowing that a good friend was videoing me and then put it out on Twitter. <laughs> and so now I have lost totally, you know, all decorum in the public's eye has been completely lost. But here's the thing. I don't think that me screaming and yelling and jumping up and down and twirling in circles is any different from the feelings that most people on this issue had on that day. Because we have been just so deeply concerned about the lack of not just the lack of leadership, but the lack of minimal responsibility on the part of the uh, of the U.S. administration, that it just came as such a relief, such a relief to know that the United States will again join responsible nations in this. And, and as you say, when the news came that John Kerry is, uh, is the climate envoy. Well, that just shows the commitment of the new administration because, you know, John, John Kerry does not compromise on his principles and his targets for climate change. He just goes all out there, which is what all of us have to be doing. So I am delighted uh, with the, with the um, naming of John Kerry. And can I say, 
the piece, there are many important pieces to the new climate uh, plan of the Biden-Harris administration, but the one that warms my heart the most is the assessment that through these measures, they're going to be creating 10 million new jobs. That just warms my heart. Uh, it's, you know, it, and it proves that our recovery packages have to be green because that's where the jobs are. That's very clear, Christiana. And yeah, that would transform so many lives. And uh, that sense of relief that you that you spoke about, I think we share it. Now, look, Christiana, can we finish off very practically with something for our listeners? Now, we know 2021, how, how important a year it is. Let's fast forward. Imagine we're talking to you now in January 22. All the things that you wanted to happen in the 2021 climate negotiations have happened. What did it deliver? And how did people make that happen? What a good question. So um, so if I could get my wish, I guess that is. I think COP26 would deliver um, a, a couple of things. First of all, increased ambition from all governments with respect to where they were in 2015. Um, because the Paris Agreement, as you will remember, foresees that every five years, countries will raise their ambition. That's the only way to get to 1.5 as maximum temperature rise. And so this is it. This is the time when everyone needs to be coming to the table with their increased ambition. And I think that's entirely possible because of what the corporate sector has done already this year and will continue doing next year, as well as the financial sector. So governments should feel the confidence to be able to do that. The second is I would really like to see um, some resolution on the price of, on carbon uh, that has been the big, big gaping, lacking hole since 2015, since the Paris Agreement, because I think a price on carbon that is technology neutral would help decarbonization very, very much. The third is I would like to see some much more serious engagement on adaptation. Adaptation has been the Cinderella of the climate discussions because we all focus so much more on mitigation, which is is correct. We should not take our eye off that ball, but we should be able to play with two balls at the same time, frankly, right? And adaptation uh, has just not had the kind of attention that is needed. And I would like to see much more on that. And finally, um, the fourth piece that I would like to see there is a, a much more serious engagement from the global north on uh, the financial flows to the global south with respect to both adaptation and mitigation. Uh, and that can come in many different forms, that is both public and private, but should include many innovative ways of helping this transition. My, my current pet topic is actually debt for climate swaps that would take on the experience that we all have already over years of nature swaps uh, that we did for debt many years ago quite successfully, but that we haven't done for climate. And, uh, and it would be especially important for the African continent, where there's so much multilateral debt. It would be a huge help for Africa to be able to be forgiven for their debt in exchange for investing into a host of climate opportunities that each of those countries have. Christiana, you've given us an agenda. You've given us optimism and you've given us something to fight for. So we're going to express our solidarity with you and, and a huge thank you for all you're doing. Yes, that was well, wonderful. Thank you very thank you. much. Thank you both. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And can I say 
my team would absolutely hang me from the tallest mango tree if I didn't say that, A, your podcast is fantastic, and also that we ourselves have a podcast called Outrage and Optimism. And we call it Outrage and Optimism because we think we still need to be continuously outraged about what we haven't done, but increasingly optimistic about what is going on and what more we can do. So uh, so after all of your listeners listen to your odd podcast, then welcome them to listen to Outrage and Optimism. Oh, it is a great podcast. And I'm sure we share many listeners. Thank you. Thank you very much, Christiana. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. I found that a very, very illuminating interview, Max. I don't know about you, but I can just imagine being a government leader sat across the table from Christiana and the way she puts her arguments forward is very, very powerful and very compelling. Oh, she was a force of nature. I mean, imagine imagine trying to disagree with her in a, in, in a negotiation. Yeah, really, really fascinating. <laughs> but, but also, you know, I think it's really important to to take a step back and, uh, you know, look at what she said. And that, that's great to have NAF join us um, to give a bit of a perspective on that. I mean, just just to kick off, Nef, what do you share the kind of overwhelming optimism of Christiana? I think there are two sides to this. You know, when we talk about optimism, I think about frontline communities and wonder if they feel optimistic in the middle of multiple crises. Let's think of farmers in the Horn of and East Africa, for instance, you know, in Somalia, Kenya, Ethiopia. Year after year, they are experiencing either destructive flooding, droughts, and this past year, huge swarms of locusts devastating crops. And now La Nina climate event is forecasted for next year, and over 50 million people expected to go hungry. So this climate crisis is an existential threat for many right now. And Christina says, you know, optimism is a choice. And perhaps it's a choice for people who have some control. But people who are living at the mercy of elements, I don't think optimism is a choice. It is what is needed for survival. Naf, that is very sobering and, and very well put. I think it also reminds us why we need to always center our analysis, right, on those who are being most impacted by climate breakdown. Naf, now a question in relation to that. You know, there is this really bold, powerful push that we're seeing from climate movements around the world. More than we've seen in years is very exciting. Can I ask, is it making an impact? Are there voices finally being heard by world leaders? Yes, definitely. Um, we are seeing, you know, the growth of not only climate movements, but movements which intersect with uh, climate, like anti-racist, feminist, youth movements, and so on. And these movements are coming together. And, and this is a sign that ordinary people are trying to gain some control. This is a great thing. Uh, but it's important to highlight that we're nowhere near to what is needed to tackle the climate emergency. We're currently on a path to nearly three degrees of warming by the end of the century. So immediate action is needed uh, right now uh, by governments, corporates to reduce emissions. If you had a message for rich nations as we head into 2021, what what should they be doing immediately? What what do we need to hear from, from leaders uh, to, to make the difference? I would say, you know, the first thing is deeper cuts in emissions and of course at the same time to support vulnerable countries with finance so that they can adapt to the climate crisis 
So this year, even in past few years, there have been commitments, pledges made by governments, including those made recently at the Climate Ambition Summit on December 12th. But this puts us on a path to nearly three degrees of warming by the end of the century. So this means, you know, we're nowhere near to what is needed to address the climate crisis. So again, I would emphasize, you know, that there is a huge need and that need is right now to make deeper cuts in emissions and also to scale up finance, especially rich countries countries need to scale up finance uh, to support vulnerable countries, vulnerable communities to adapt to the climate crisis. And this is clearly stated in the Paris Agreement. That feels like the right note to end on. Thank you very, very much, Naf, for joining us and for giving us a bit of a reality check, as well as an agenda of what needs to be done. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for joining us for Equals this year. Happy New Year to you. And we'll be coming back at the start of 2021 with more. Yes, thanks, everyone. I mean, what a year it's been. And, and thanks for, for sticking with us and, and joining us for, for episodes. Please keep listening. Recommend us to your friends. And uh, we'll see you, see you all in 2021.